Hosea chapter 14. We'll read all verses 1 through 9. Please hear the words of the Lord. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take, all, take away all iniquity except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. And their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, and doers of his holy and errant and infallible word. You may be seated. As we turn the corner now and wind down, excuse me, for the kids that are of ages uh, three to eight, um, you can be dismissed at this time with our dear sister Nicole. For the remainder of you with us, again, welcome on this morning. Uh, thank you guys for the gifts that you showered us with in appreciation, and we appreciate you. Um, can't wait to look at all of the goodies, including the paintings that I saw up there. Going to have to figure out some spaces for those. But thank you guys. We appreciate that. Uh, as we reach the end of our um, flyover, and that's what it is, it's a flyover of Hosea, what I hope you walk away with is a few piercing truths about our relationship with God. Number one, we are unceasingly prone to stray. We are unceasingly prone to drift, to stray away from God and to drift towards idols, other lovers, other gods. And yet, despite that proneness, God is unceasingly and patiently committed to showering us with undeserving love. And God is ceasing, unceasingly and patiently committed to showering us with an undeserving call back to him when we stray. And so all of the themes that we've covered in the early chapters of Hosea are seen in these last chapters. But those are the two piercing truths that keep rising to the surface of this book. In chapter 11, we are reminded as we turn the corner and we, and, we, and we close this book out, in chapter 11, we are reminded again of those faithful, uh, how faithful rather God's love is towards an unfaithful people. He is a faithful God and he has a faithful love despite an unfaithful people. In chapter 12, we are reminded again that although this faithful God loves us, it is not because we ourselves are faultless. And it's not because we've earned his love. 
because we have not. Instead, our actions have earned his judgment, which leads us to chapter 13, where we hear of a judgment that is coming, but not a judgment that is intended to erase Israel, but rather it's a judgment that's intended to awaken Israel, which is where Hosea ends in chapter 14, where he makes this final call to return back to the Lord. So that's what you hear throughout this book. Again, all the same themes that we've been reading from the beginning, we see them again in the last four chapters of this book. First, we start in chapter 11 where we see God's love being reflected. Verse 1, it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and I fed them. That's chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Of course, Israel begins with a description of God's covenantal love through the example of a faithful father's love to an unfaithful wife. That's how, not Israel, but that's how Hosea begins. It begins by describing this faithful husband and this unfaithful wife. But in chapter 11, it moves from a marital love to a parental love. And it starts with Israel's childhood. Israel's childhood, if we, if we, are, to, if we are to work through this, this, this metaphor that, that, that Hosea is painting for us, Israel's childhood can be traced back to their early days when they were in Egypt. Before they were of any reputation, they were loved deeply by God. Not based on their attraction, not based on their mightiness, not based on their strength, not based on their wealth, but based on God's grace and based on God's mercy, they were deeply loved. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 says, talking about Israel, it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's not because you were great, Israel, that the Lord loved you, but it's because of the Lord's covenantal love. It's because of the Lord's oath to your fathers. It's because the Lord just chose to love you. Like a faithful father, God's love of Israel is traced back to a time where they had nothing significant to offer him. The picture of a child is intended to paint Israel not as mighty and, 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 and not as strong, but as fragile and small and, and weak. In verse 3, the loving father describes how he took Israel by the arms and taught them how to walk. You understand that picture that's being painted? You should have in your imagination at this point this picture of a stumbling infant trying to walk but in need of someone to hold his arms as he's trying to walk. And that's the picture that God is painting about Israel. To that imagery, the Lord says, it was me who was there to hold your hands and hold your arms as you were trying to walk. However, unfortunately, too often when, when we think of ourselves, uh, rather in this position, we have in our head the imagery of a person who just learned how to do all of this on their own. That's kind of how Israel sees themselves at this point. And oftentimes, too often, that's how we see ourselves. 
But the same is true of verse 7. This loving and this kind and this gentle father is not only carrying Israel by the arms as they're learning to walk, but he's also protecting them. He's leading them with cords of kindness, bands of love, leading them, guiding them, protecting them, sustaining them. Even the scripture says he bent down and fed them. The Lord stooping down out of love to nourish and feed his people. His love was present in all of their growth. All of their maturation as a people was dependent solely on him. And so it is with you and I. How God describes Israel is equally true of you and I. Like like a loving father caring for a helpless child, so God has cared for you and me. Whatever you have is due to God's lifting you up by the arms. Whatever protection you have reached or whatever protection you have received in this life, rather, has come due to his might, not your own. Whatever sustaining and keeping that has ever been done in your life has come as a result of his bending down to feed you. This is what God has done And this is what God is doing, not just for Israel, but this is what God is doing for us since the very beginning. And yet, how does Israel respond to this unbelievable demonstration of love? Verse 2, it says in chapter 11, the more they were called, the more they went away. They wept, they kept sacrificing to the bells and burning offerings to idols. As God wooed Israel more and more, as God blessed them more and more, as God increased their lots, as God made them more prominent, as God lavished upon them more and more evidences of his love, they erected and established more and more idols in their hearts. This is a rebellious son. This is the rebellious son that no matter how much you love or how much love you show this son, they still will not respond back with love. They just continually grow colder towards the love that you are showing them. How true is that of us? God pouring his love out and showering you and I with his blessing only to have us live and act like he doesn't exist sometimes. However, we see that not only is there this rejection of his love despite blessing, but we see also a rejection despite or rejection through exploitation in chapter 11, verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. Though Israel refuses to turn to the one who is providing them with this love, that is not stopping them from calling out to him. Israel is very much a prototypical example of the award winner who rises to the podium after receiving an award and responds as he walks up to the podium, first giving honor to God, who is indeed the head of my life, only to discover that God isn't even in the top 20 of this cat's life. And this is Israel. They are, hey, first giving honor to God, who is indeed the head of our lives. And they aren't, and God isn't anywhere on the radar for them. They know who to call on. They know who to look to, even though all of their energy and all of their devotion and all of their dedication is geared towards staying away from him. How many of you know that feeling? I certainly do. 
Maybe that's someone you know right now. Maybe that's been you before. Maybe that's you right now. Even though your heart knows who to call on for provision, your heart refuses to turn to him in devotion. Like the son who calls his father whenever he's in trouble and then disappears again, never to be seen again until the next time he is in need. This is Israel. They have rejected him through exploitation. They have also indeed rejected him despite his blessing. But this relentless rejection is met with a relentless love. Verses 8 through 11 are some of the most amazing words and verses drafted in Scripture because they do the best job of capturing the depth of Israel's penalty towards God and the depth of God's love and mercy back towards Israel. Verse 8, it says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Atma? How can I treat you like Zeboiim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not, again, destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, I will not come in wrath. Israel's sin is so egregious in the face of the blessing, they've chosen idols over and over and over again. In the face of love, continuous love, in unceasing love, They've manipulated that love over and over and over again, yet God has continued with them. Atma and Zoboyim, and Zoboyim might not be a familiar, might not be familiar names to some of you, but they are actually lost cousins in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Some of you may recall the story of Abraham pleading with God not to destroy the city of his nephew, Lot, because of his wickedness, the city of Sodom. Abraham says, hey, God, What if there's 50 righteous people there? Will you preserve it? Sure. What about 45? Okay. What about 40? Okay. What what about 30? What about 20? What about 10? He dwindles and tries to negotiate with God these numbers because he realizes that there's no righteous people in the city. And so he's trying to dwindle down. And, and, and despite, his, despite his negotiation, there is no saving of these cities. Sodom and Gomorrah are dealt harsh judgment from God because of their unrighteousness. Well, a little known fact is that Sodom and Gomorrah were not the only locations that were brought to the ground that day. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 23, it says, The whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout and overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Atma, and Zeboiim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. Atma and Zeboiim, the two cities that we find in this text. So the text is showing us that it is as if this moment with Israel has brought God back to this bargaining table. But instead of like the first time where God says, there is no righteousness present to keep me from destroying this city or these cities, here he finds himself in a similar situation, but it is not the righteousness of the people that is staying his hand of destruction, but it is his own compassion established through his covenant with Israel. 
He's saying in this moment, I will not destroy you, not because there are so many righteous people here. No, I will not destroy you because you are mine. My heart recoils within me. My compassion towards my children is warm and tender, and I am not like a man. In other words, the covenants that I make, I always keep. So instead of coming to them as a lion to devour them, in this moment, he is going to roar like a lion and bring them back. And that's what it says in chapter 11, verse 10 and 11. It says, they shall go after the Lord and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. This is the unfathomable love of God at work in all of those who he claims as his own. This is goodness for Israel and great news for us because when we embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, we are met with that same amazing and relentless love. Why? Because in Christ we are his own as well. Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection establishes covenant with us in his very own blood. We are now sons and daughters, and those who are, in, or those who are his by his will will never be taken out of his hand. Nevertheless, even though God's love is real and greater than Israel's sin, it does not make Israel's sin less real and less significant, which leads to chapter 12 and Israel's indictment. Right out of the gate in chapter 12, you hear God unpacking Israel's sin. He says that they are feeding on the wind. As we discussed on last week, this pursuing of the wind is a chasing after frivolous things, living a life of empty pursuit. However, not only... That, this chasing of the wind, they are living a life or living lives of lies, lives of violence, lives of bad alliances and bad allegiances with godless people who, have, who may have political power but, do, but who do not have God. And this is part of the indictment against Israel. Remember, we talked about chapter 11 being about God's love. Chapter 12 is more about God's indictment against Israel, the case against Israel as to why they indeed deserve judgment. However, in exploring the different ways that sin has been manifesting itself through the book of Hosea, the Lord decides to travel back to the past of Israel's early days to showcase how his love has been consistent and abundant despite their sin. You see, in going back, the Lord reveals how far they have fallen, and he sets up an appeal to them to return to where they once were. He points them in chapter 12, he points them to the father of Israel, a man by the name of Jacob, who was, whose name was changed to Israel. In fact, in verses 2 through 6, God takes them all the way back to that moment where Jacob's name became Israel. In chapter 12, verse 2, he says, The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed, and he wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his, memor is his memorial name. It's as if the Lord is in his love, is pleading with Israel, don't forget where you came from. 
You are a nation whose father wrestled with me in his dreams and vision and prevailed, gaining his blessing, gaining the blessing of the Lord and gaining the favor of the Lord. You are a nation whose father held on to God until he received his favor. You are a nation whose father was given a vision by me of a ladder reaching heaven and touching earth with angels ascending and descending up and down and who heard me speak to him and established covenant with him saying, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land and for, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Don't forget where you came from. That's your father. We hear this call to the past again in chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. It says, Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was guarded. God, again, points them back to the forefathers, points them back to Jacob, points them back to Moses, where even through adversity, he showed himself mighty and strong and near. When Jacob was cheated by Laban, and he had to serve Laban for years in order to be given the right to marry the daughter that he loved, God did not abandon him. When the nation was placed, when, when, when Israel was placed into slavery in Egypt because Pharaoh feared that they would take it over, they would take Egypt over, the Lord raised up a prophet named Moses from among them who was sovereignly appointed to serve as Israel's deliverer. All of this is meant to point Israel to this truth, that you've forgotten where you've come from. You've forgotten about the one who has always been there for you, me. You know, as we look at Israel, brothers and sisters, family, is it okay for us if, to ask the same question of ourselves? Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten about the one who was always there, the one who has always delivered us, and the one who has always loved us despite our lack of love towards him? You know, the movie Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever, is coming out next week. And I'm just mildly excited. But in thinking about this passage, I was reminded of a scene in the first movie where T'Challa is in the middle of a ritual combat for the throne of Wakanda. Maybe you've seen this movie. Maybe you recognize it. If I'm spoiling it for you, then I'm sorry. You should have seen it by now. Nevertheless, Lord M'Baku, the leader of the Jabari tribe, is giving T'Challa the business. He is working T'Challa down. And just when it looks like it might be over for T'Challa... He looks over at his mother, the queen, and his mother yells out, tell him who you are. And then T'Challa tells him who he is, and he wins. And it was intended to serve as a reminder to T'Challa of his heritage. It was intended to serve as a reminder that you were always meant to be king. Don't forget who you are. Here in Hosea, God is bringing back to remembrance Israel's forefather, Jacob, to remind them who they are and who they were always meant to be, his. Don't forget that you're mine. Don't forget the covenant that I established with those who came before you. You, you were always mine. 
And these idols have fooled you into thinking that you belong to someone else, but you belong to me. You know, saints of God, sometimes we need to be reminded of that, don't we? In our walks with Jesus, in our walk, in our salvation walk, sometimes we need to be reminded we belong to Christ. That Christ is ours and we are his. There are times when it doesn't feel like it. But it's in this book that we are reminded over and over and over again that though you might not feel like it, you are his. He is yours. You are in relationship with him. See, they are bound by covenant. They are God's covenant and beloved children of God. They are not intended to be bowing to other gods. They are meant for only one. And it is from that remembrance that we should hear verse 6 in chapter 12 where it says, So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. With God's help, with God's help, did you hear that? So by the help of God, because we cannot return to God apart from God. Remember who you are. Remember where you were and remember where, where you are supposed to be and come back. You see this in a particular way, or you see this particular way of losing sight reflected in the indictment against Israel in verse 7. It says, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. You see, one way that Israel had lost its way was in its underhanded dealings with the weak among them. They were cheating people that didn't have much. They were using unbalanced scales, false scales, scales built to give bad measurements, and charging people more money for less product. God says to those who are exploiting those with already so little, by the help of God, return, hold fast to love and hold fast to justice and wait continually for your God. So repentance in this case for the cheater is to stop cheating. Repentance for the oppressor is to stop oppressing. That's what it means to return to God for those individuals. Return to God is in part leaving behind the habits of exploitation and greed and oppression and clinging towards showing love to everyone and treating them righteously and justly. But we find another indictment in verse 8. Verse 8, it says, Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. So first we see they are trusting in their own wealth. Ah, I'm rich. Second, we see they are trusting in their own righteousness. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. They have lost love. They have lost sight of God who loves them deeply and who sees them and their sin clearly. But to them, God is also saying, by the help of God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. So repentance in this case looks like those who rely on themselves and trusting in their own wealth to place their hope and their trust in God. It looks like those who live as God does not see their sin and who live as though God does not see their iniquity and those who trust in their own righteousness to see themselves, it looks like them seeing themselves as they really are and recognizing that only God is righteous and God sees all and only God is capable of saving them. But Israel's indictment continues into chapter 13 
Look at verse 1. It says, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Israel was great. Ephraim was great. But instead of attributing their greatness to God, they turned to idols made from their own hands. Feel like, is that familiar to you? Sound familiar to you maybe in our own lives as we receive blessing, as we receive plenty, as we receive provision, how easy it is to turn our attention away from God being the source of such blessing, beginning to think subtly that it's really us that's creating this blessing. Israel for, for Israel, the more that they received from God, the more they used to erect, they, the more that they used what they received from God to erect idols that stayed in opposition to them. Even sacrificing their own talks about sacrifice, which is most likely pointing to child sacrifices in service to these idols. So while, while God protected them in their vulnerability, they went out and destroyed their own in their vulnerability. Verse 4 details more of the indictment. It says, but I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. You hear God again making that appeal to remember? Remember, it was me when you were in Egypt, captive and bound. It was me that delivered you. Remember, it was me that when you were in the wilderness, in the land of drought, with no water to drink, no food to eat, who provided you food, who provided you water. When you were in Egypt, I delivered. When you were in drought, I provided. But again, instead of always pointing this deliverance and pointing this provision back to God, they begin to attribute this greatness to other idols and even to themselves. They forget God. This is why judgment is coming to the house of Israel, and we see this judgment in chapter 13. It says in verse 3, therefore they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. You see, those that see themselves as mighty or those that saw themselves once as mighty will evaporate like the morning dew. They may see themselves as mighty, but to God they are nothing. They are dew. To God, they are nothing. They are like chaff in a brush of leaves or a brush of grain on the threshing floor. To God, they are nothing. They are like smoke out of the window. He will not be rivaled, this God. He will not be contested, this God. He will not be contended with. God is unbelievably merciful. But God is unceasingly holy, and nothing and no one will last if they remain in opposition to him. 
We see again the might and the power of God in judgment in verses 7 through 8. It says, so I am to them like a lion, like a leopard will lurk. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts. There I will devour them like a lion as the wild beasts rip them open. Earlier, God was using the imagery of a lion to demonstrate his might in bringing back his children who had strayed from him. But in Israel's continued rebellion, we now see God using the imagery of a lion, not roaring to bring his children back, but rather on the prowl to consume his prey. This is the coming judgment of God for Israel. This is Babylon. This is Assyria. However, this does not only apply to Israel in their season of judgment with their earthly enemies, but this ultimately applies to anyone who would attempt to rival and oppose God. All the way through all generations, even to the end, Revelations chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 tells us that then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged, were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of, the fi- lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he too was thrown into the lake of fire. Saints of God, when judgment comes, there will be no hiding from this God. There will be no one who can protect us from this God. No one who can protect us from his judgment. Even in chapter 13, verse 10 of Hosea says, Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. He's pointing to Solomon, or to Saul rather, in 1 Samuel when Israel was begging for a king. And Samuel was saying, you don't need a king, you got a king. God is your king. And they would say, no, we need somebody to protect us and keep us. And, and he said, no, he's just going to exploit you. He's going he's gonna to rule with an iron hand. You don't want that. And they said, no, 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 we need a king. And they got one. And he was exactly what Samuel described he would be. And every king ever since. Even God says in this verse, chapter 13, verse 10, who really is your king? Or who is this king that will save you when my judgment comes? None of your kings will save you from this judgment. So what on earth can Israel do in light of this coming judgment? And even for us, what on earth can we do? Because there is an eternal judgment coming for those who will not bow the knee. So what on earth can we do in light of this coming eternal judgment? Thankfully, God does not leave us without hope. You see, God judges Israel, but not to destroy Israel completely. He judges them to awaken them. And like the discipline of a loving father, he chastises them in order to bring them back. And we see that lastly in the 14th chapter where it says, God's return, O Israel, verse 1, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. 
God's holiness requires judgment against our idolatry. Our spiritual adultery, adultery, our wickedness, our rivalry against God, it requires judgment. And we are indicted before God. We stand guilty as charged. But while God's holiness requires judgment, God's love provides salvation from that coming judgment. And that's why you hear the appeal in chapter 14, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. What does the prophet encourage the people to cry out? Return to God. Return to God. Again, what does returning look like? Take away all my iniquity. Accept what is good. We will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. We will offer sacrifice to you. Returning looks like forgiveness and desire to be cleansed from our sin. Return looks like a desire to offer up our lives as a living sacrifice, pleasing, holy, and acceptable to God. Are you ready to return if you have not returned? What else does return look like? Well, according to these verses, it looks like an acknowledgement that salvation can be, cannot be found anywhere else. What does he say? He says we're not going to look to Assyria any longer. Assyria cannot save us, and we will not ride on horses, and we will no longer say our God to the work of our hands. It's an acknowledgement that salvation can come from nowhere else. Returning to God meaning, means that we say our salvation cannot be found in the might of another nation, in the might of a political power. Our salvation comes from God and from God alone. Returning to God means that, our, that we say our salvation cannot be found in other gods, in other idols of our own creation and our own making, but our salvation comes from God and God alone. Are you ready to return? And what happens when we return? Scripture tells us that when we return, according to this text, verse 5, I will be like due to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His roots, his shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. He says in verse 4 that I will heal them from their apostasy. You see, your departure from God leaves you wounded in ways that you don't even understand. But your return to God, when you turn back towards God, God promises healing for the woundedness. He promises here in verses 5 through 7, nourishment, refreshment, growth, maturity, maturation, fulfillment, satisfaction. That's what the picture is painting. Well, that's the picture that he's painting. All of these things are found. All of these things that we're looking for, by the way. All of these things are found when we turn back to him. And then lastly, let me point you to one last thing that you see in this text that's really, really interesting. All the way back to chapter 11, verse 1, he says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, of course, we think about that when we read it initially in the past tense in terms of this is what, this is God talking about 
when Israel was young and he was there calling them out of Egypt, delivering them out of Egypt. But as you look to the future from this point, we've come to find out that there was more involved in that text than meets the eye. For in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, in speaking of Jesus, Matthew declares, and remained there until the death of Herod when he fleed from his birthplace because Herod was declaring that all of the newborn boys of a, of a certain age were to be, was to be smited, was to be killed, was to be slain. And his family had to retreat to Egypt until the death of Herod. Matthew said, this was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And so Hosea, in prophesying about Israel's past, was also prophesying about our future. He was declaring to us that the, that the largest way in which God's love would be demonstrated, because that's what, all, that's what chapter 11 is all about, this love that calls us back, this love that draws us and tells us to return, to return, to return. He was prophesying that this love was going to be completely fulfilled at the arrival of Jesus, that when we return, we will be returning because of Jesus. That when we return, we wouldn't have to worry about whether or not we return with a perfect righteousness. That when we return, we will return with the righteousness of Christ. And so our judgment would be, the judgment of God would be stayed. It would be prevented. We would escape it, not because when we return, we would be doing so good and upholding all of the law perfectly, but when we return, we will return under the merit of the Savior Jesus Christ. And so the invitation to return, saints, is not just an invitation to do better. The invitation to return is not just an invitation to do some, do some things. The invitation to return is to turn your lives over to Jesus Christ, to submit your will to him, to trust him with everything, and his righteousness will become your righteousness. And you will avoid the judgment of God, and you will experience eternal nourishment and eternal growth and eternal refreshing and eternal fulfillment, as is declared in chapter 14, but not based on your merit, but based on the merit of the one who gave his life on Calvary's cross for you. Let us return, amen? Let's pray. God, we love you so much.